Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swig. It is December, Christmas bird count season, winter owl season, time to enjoy holiday cards festooned with cardinals and chickadees. Why are those the most popular Christmas holiday birds? Cardinals aren't even found continent-wide. I've never seen anything beyond the classic black-capped slash Carolina chickadee. No brown-headed boreal chickadees or eye-lined mountain chickadees. This gets to my theory that the entire Christmas culture industrial complex is based entirely in the Northeast United States. And I occasionally see a Santa with a palm tree, but that's really an exception rather than the rule. I I could go on. This is not the place for this discussion. You can find my thoughts on the celebration cultural hegemony on my other podcast, Banala Days. I want to talk to you about chickadees and this fascinating study I read about recently. That's all about the hybrid zone between Carolina and black-capped chickadees, which, as you may know, has been studied extensively, and rightly so, and, and sort of why it's relatively stable when the two species regularly steal each other's vocalizations. Not just songs, as birders know well, but calls, too, from time to time. And the answer to that question is that they might be using smell. They smell different, Carolina and black-capped chickadees. And that smell comes from the uropygial gland, which in layman's terms is that preen gland underneath the tail where the birds secrete the oils that they use to, to take care of their feathers. Well, it turns out that the oils in Carolina and black-capped chickadees are different and in fact smell different. And so this was sort of discovered in this really cool study undertaken by Alex Van Hoon and Amber Rice. Uh, they captured chickadees from the hybrid zone, and they placed them in a, a simple maze, like a Y-shaped maze, uh, that contained the odors of one or the other species. And they sort of measured how much time the birds spent in each arm, the arm that smelled like a chickadee, and the arm that didn't, or maybe smelled like a different species of chickadee. And as you might expect, they actually spent time in the arm, or perhaps the armpit, of their own species, which suggests that they recognize and prefer that smell. So perhaps odor plays a role in speciation, and if so, to what do hybrids smell like? Are they different and therefore unattractive? Is there a market for bird deodorant? Fascinating questions. More evidence that birds use smell way more than we always thought. Lots of future research opportunities. And you know, all I know for sure is that Carolina and black-capped chickadees will undoubtedly Add their two cents. It is the last month to celebrate Pileated Woodpecker as ABA's Bird of the Year. What a great Bird of the Year it's been. I have one last story to share from a listener, Gaspard Tanguay Labrosse from Montreal, Quebec, is the host of Tu A Oiseau, the most popular birding podcast in the ABA area in French. He talks Pileated Woodpeckers, CBCs, and COVID birding. It's very seasonally appropriate. That is at the end of the show. But first, an encore interview with the greatest hawk watcher in North America and arguably the world, Jerry Ligori. We first ran this back in 2018. It has been a while. 
I hope you enjoy it. All that after this week's Rare This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of November 2021. After a week without first records, we're back in business at the end of the month with a couple exceptional ABA area rarities thrown in as well. I will start with the latter. What looks very much like yet another small build Elania in the ABA area was photographed this week in Waukegan Beach, Illinois, just north of Chicago. Interestingly, it was fewer than 50 miles away from what is widely accepted as the ABA's first record of this highly migratory South American flycatcher that was in April 2012. This is the ABA area's third small build Elania this year, following birds photographed in Texas and Quebec. Hard to say what is going on here, but this small build Elania invasion, such that you can call three individuals an invasion, is definitely one of the rarity stories of the year. Speaking of Quebec, a Eurasian tree sparrow at St. Bartolome is a first record for the province, although perhaps an anticlimactic one. This brings Quebec's potential first for 2021 up to five total, which is tied with New York for the most this year. Other first records to note, a hen king eider, which I guess technically makes it a queen eider, was found in McLean County, North Dakota, where it is a state first. Kentucky gets off the schneid with their first state first for 2021, and Anna's hummingbird coming to a feeder in Louisville. If Rufus hummingbird is the most common winter hummer in the east, Anna's is increasingly part of that sort of second tier. And to Kansas, where a couch's kingbird in Lyon County is a first there, almost certainly an underreported bird, given their similarity with some of the other yellow-bellied tyrant flycatchers. Those are the highlights in the rare bird world this week. If you want the entire roundup, check out the Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba, or get those rarities as soon as they happen on the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Facebook. Within the community of birding, there are these sort of sub-communities, people whose birding interest is focused on certain groups of birds, and perhaps none are as well-established as hawk watchers. The hawk watching community in North America is close-knit and passionate, and one of its undisputed authorities is Jerry Ligori of Salt Lake City, Utah. Jerry is the author of Hawks at a Distance and Hawks from Every Angle, two of the most influential family-specific field guides out there. Uh, in North America, and the co-author of many more. He is the 2017 recipient of the ABA's Robert Ridgway Award for Publications in Field Ornithology. His articles have appeared many times in ABA's Birding Hit magazine. And uh, the June 2018 issue features his raptor photography with three different commemorative covers. First time we've ever done that. Welcome, Jerry. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. It is very exciting to have three covers. I've never seen that on any magazine. So that was just a huge compliment. Yeah, they're they're really great images too. Um I got the I got the barn owl one sent to me. I'm actually kind of partial to that one. That one's my favorite. But they're all they're all beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Your name is synonymous with raptor identification and hawk watching in North America. You've been at it for decades. What was it that first attracted you to these birds and what is it that you still love about them? You know of course, I love the way they fly. I mean, especially on migration. I just love to watch migration more than anything. But um, the first spark, per se, was uh, my friend Mark Horowitz pointed out some turkey vultures to me when I was 17, 16 years old. And they just got off the ground in front of us. I guess we spooked them in a, in a work truck. And they just started to soar and kind of sway so effortlessly right in front of us. Just the way they got up and just 
had no problem. I mean, they, they flapped maybe three or four times and then just started to float above us. And I, I just, I just, just mesmerized by their movements. So, um, I know Turkey Vulture isn't a raptor, but it definitely got me hooked on watching birds fly and move. And then, you know, this same friend of mine showed me a red tailed hawk the next day. He said, Oh, I have red tailed hawks nesting across the street. You got to see those. And I, this red tail came flying out of the field over the field and screamed. And I guess it had a nest. <laughs> we didn't, we didn't know better at the time, Yeah. but I was just like, Whoa, Whoa, wow. Listen yeah. to that. Look at that thing. That is, <laughs> you know, so just, you know, the power and the way they move that that's really what got me hooked. And you've had the opportunity to watch them at Hawk watches all over North America. You still, you still have that sort of amazement with when you watch those birds in those places. I do. Just this spring, I, I have a migration that goes over my house. I live along the Wasatch foothills, and we had a whole bunch of Swainson's hawks going over one day, and I was just staring at them. I didn't say a word for about 10 minutes, and then, you know, I had a couple of friends over at the time. I said, this might be a good day for some birds moving, and, you know, I I just love it. I love it more today than I ever have, actually, yeah. and so, yeah, I... I I still love watching migration. Yeah, they can't beat it. You can't beat the spectacle of it for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're probably best known for your your books, Hawks at a Distance, and then Hawks from Every Angle. I really, I really like these books. I think they're so clever. You know, so many field guides have these beautiful idealized versions of birds, but you know, we all know that's not how you see them in the field. Uh, what motivated you to create these books this way? Uh, what did you? What need did you see for something like that? You know. You, you pretty much summed it up when you said that's not the way they see them in the field and other guides. That That's exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to show them how they actually look in the field. I think I think Hawks at a Distance is perfect for that. And, yeah. and it's funny, though, because it also gets criticized. Oh, the pictures are too small. And I'm like, well, <laughs> that's the point. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. Like if I get a bad review, the pictures are too small. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Well, yeah, I can accept that because yeah, people yeah. are so, you know, they want the big full page, beautiful image, but that's not how you see them in the field. And so I, I just wanted to present them as they normally look. And I did, I tried to show them in all the different positions and all the different lighting situations. And so people, you know, when you look, when you open the page, you say, oh, Okay, that's a sharp chin hawk as I'm going to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not necessarily going to help you identify your close up photos, although it may, but you know, it will certainly help you become a better field birder. That's what always has amazed me about people who are really good hawk watchers is their ability to pick these these things out at, you know, enormous distance or if a bird kind of flashes by you really quickly. Like, you know, the, uh, have you ever been to the Kiptopeak Hawk Watch in Virginia? You know, I I haven't. Every fall, I had my friend, uh, good friend Brian Sullivan, was counting there for a while, and he would always say, "Come on down to Kip to Peak," yeah. you know, you, you know. And I'm like, "Well, you know, I'm counting at Cape May. I I yeah. I don't want to take a day off, you know." So <laughs> it's the spot I've always wanted to go. And then after I gave up counting at Cape May, I went out west. Uh, so I never I never went to the Kip to Peak Hawk. 
Yeah, it's a really interesting hawk watch. You know, you always think of hawk watches as getting like above everything and seeing these birds so far away. But Kip to Peak, sometimes the birds like come right over you, over this row of trees kind of in front of you. And you have to be kind yes. of fast on it. It's 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 different and really interesting in a really uh, different in a really interesting way, I should say. It, it's probably a great site for learning. Yeah, um, definitely. There are certain sites like that where, okay, the bird just, just flew by in two seconds. How am I going to identify that? Mm-hmm. The key is to learn those basic shapes well and the way they move. You know, the the plumage detail and minutia is so secondary. So if people are counting or watching at Kip to Peak their whole season, they will start to pick up on, you know, the, the key identification traits such as overall shape. Okay, what was that? Well, it was pointy winged. And after a while, you, okay, that was a Merlin. So you, I would stress that. If you're at a hawk watch and you get a short glimpse, just try to focus in on the on the shape and the flight style because that's how you're gonna identify, you know, 99% of the birds in the field. In the in the interview in Birding Magazine, you you said that one of your pet peeves was people that you try to identify everything that goes by. Do you think that it's useful to sort of let some of those go by if you don't get those impressions? Absolutely. I mean, it's a good thing to try to identify every yeah, bird. Right, right, right. You know, but. It's impossible. I wish I could say I could identify every single raptor I've ever seen, but hmm. it, it would just be a lie. I mean, it, it's not humanly possible to identify every bird. Some are just too far out. Yeah. Some are just, you know, very short glimpses. So, yeah, you know, sometimes your ego gets in the way. Oh, <laughs> well, that was a sharp shin. And you really didn't know what it was. And I, I don't do that. I say, boy, that's, uh, you know, as I get older, I realize, you know, I get more honest, let's say. When you're younger, you know, you want to, you know, I wasn't really out to impress people. But you know what? It, if you if you study raptors hard and long enough, you will impress people. And you'd be surprised what you can identify mm-hmm. with experience. So, yeah. yeah, leave some unidentified. It's OK. So you've been described as having a, a photographic memory, both in terms of being able to remember what you see in great detail and also, you know, remembering specifics about the thousands of bird photos you've taken. Uh, how do you do that? And how do you think it has helped you as a birder? I don't know how I do it. <laughs> it it's just something that I guess I was born with. It, it helps me a lot, actually. It also has also helped me when people have tried to pull the wool over my eyes, you know, with a photo. <laughs> yeah. That's happened a few times. So, you know, it keeps keeps me and it keeps people honest. But, yeah, just note, being able to notice different traits on a, on a single bird. Um, you know, there's there was a bird that wintered here in Utah 2002. And then I hadn't seen it for about 10 years. And about 10 miles away, I saw it again in about 10 years ago. 10 years later, about 10 miles away, I'm like, is that that bird from 2002, November 2002? <laughs> and, you know, as I took a couple of pictures, I said, yeah, that's the bird. And I, I matched it up and I said, oh, and it, it, that's kind of valuable just in your own individual database in your head or what, you know, just for logging uh, sightings. Um, and, and when you're counting hawks you, and you get to recognize the locals, things like that. You know, the ghost shoots had a bunch of golden eagles, about three golden eagles that were local and never migrated, but they looked like they were migrating many right, times. Right, right, right. Oh, no, no, that's the, uh, that's our adult, you know, that's got this little thing in the wing and yeah, you know, but I, I don't know how I do it, honestly. <laughs> Just uh, something you're fortunate to have. Yes. And it's fun. 
I think I think hawk watching is one of those sort of aspects of birding that has such enormous potential for really reaching non-birders just because of the spectacle and you know a lot of people have interest in in raptors generally. I'm sure you've seen that. What is it like to see that spark catch in a in a person who may not yet be a birder? That is the the best thing about bird watching for me personally is to see somebody's excitement for the first time uh, they catch a big flight or they see a hawk in the hand, especially kids. Uh, you, you can see it in their face. For me now, it's more about the people and paying it forward. So yeah, that is the most rewarding part about birding. And hawks are definitely the group that this happens often with. You know, I mean, <laughs> kids are fascinated by predators. You mean that bird can see miles away? They could see a mouse on the ground? I'm like, yeah, they, they can. To see a, like a kettle or a, or a group of hawks up in the air, that really excites kids and, and, and older people as well, people just starting out. But yeah, that's the most rewarding thing about being a birder is when somebody tells me, you know, you turned me on 25 years ago, you know, I, I thank you so much. I'm like, I, you're welcome. But, you know, really, it's the birds that turn them on. I was just helping a just little. channel, yeah. <laughs> you know, hawk watching is almost like a cult. It is, like you said in your introduction, like it's it's a form of birding outside of just your normal birding. It really is. Uh, you were you were heavily involved in the creation of the the Hawkwatch International Raptor Identification App, uh, which is really unique in that it takes advantage of that technology in ways that other guides don't. I think that's something that field guide publishers haven't quite nailed yet. You know, apps are often just the guide on the phone, which is you know useful, but not. Not really a game-changing application of that technology, but the Hawkwatch app uses these videos to show the way the birds move in the air, which is such a great thing, especially for raptors. Um, is that something that you really push to include? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the videos, I guess they're the key to the app, and and they're also the key to identification. I mean, if I can describe to you how a shark shin hawk flaps its wings or flies in a windy day, and you could understand what i'm saying but to see it to watch it in the video is a thousand times more powerful i mean and the voiceovers you know they're telling you what to look at while you're watching it when brian and i brian sullivan uh had this idea to do an app we were taking video at the time but we weren't too serious about it but we thought the video is going to be the key to the app let's get video for all 34 north american species including vultures and condor Let's just do it right. It took us about five years to get all the video. We traveled around the country. Brian went to Belize for Hook Bill Kite. <laughs> but it was worth it. I mean, we've gotten a lot of good feedback on the app. Uh, people make fun of my voiceovers, friends, of course. <laughs> I think they're good voiceovers. Most people like them. But yeah, the video is just, it stands alone for sure. And I appreciate you bringing that up. I've often sort of knocked some of these field guide apps that are out there because as i said a lot of times it's just the the field guide on the on the phone and now this yeah. technology has so much potential to be really useful for bird Lots identification to get people out and enjoying birds and kind of one of the things that i think is really useful for learning birds is sort of building your own language to describe things and you know mm -hmm. watching a video you can you can build your own language. You can describe things in your own way that's going to resonate with you. And it's it's just so useful. 
Right. And and Cornell Lab of Ornithology is the other partner on the app. Mm-hmm. And what they can do is take this content and keep it relevant. You know, they yeah. have the capability of making sure, you know, the videos or the app content will never go out of style, per se. You know what I'm saying? So I will say other apps serve their purpose. And it's incredibly yeah. difficult to get clean footage of moving birds. So <laughs> yeah. it's it's not that easy. I mean, it's, you know, oh my gosh, there's dust on the sensor. That that video was perfect, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. or, oh, I, I jerked the tripod a little bit. I got to delete that. So I wouldn't be surprised if you saw lots of video in future apps, but I'd also be surprised if there was a comprehensive video app like that because it takes a lot of money and a lot of time to get the footage. So, yeah. And, and a lot of, it takes a lot of data too. It takes up a lot of room on your device. And as you know, we kind of reach that critical mass where data becomes almost inconsequential. It seems like we're getting there every year. Mm -hmm. That's that sort of stuff is going to be more useful. I think. Right. You were diagnosed with the neurodegenerative disease ALS in 2016. How is that? affected the way that you approach birding? I, I obviously, I don't go out bird watching as much. Um, most, most of my bird watching is uh, sitting on my front deck that I have a, a nice view from and just mm-hmm. listening to the birds around the yard and watching birds fly overhead. I can't hold binoculars any longer mm-hmm. and it's very difficult to stand up. Um, so it's limited it, but I will say if there is a silver lining, it's helped my skills. <laughs> I don't <laughs> use binoculars any, any longer. Right, I, yeah. I just sit out there naked eye, which, you know, I've done that before too. When people have binoculars and they can't find birds and yeah, they have this old little mini compact and I've lent people my binoculars at Hawk watches and said, here, try these, you know, and just for them to have the experience. And I just watch naked eye all day. And, and, you know, so it helps your skills for sure to do that, to leave the binoculars at home. But um, yeah, it's, it's limited it greatly. It's, it's very difficult to watch birds. Um, you know, like you said, it's, it's a nerve disease that affects your muscles and it, it's affecting my back and my neck. So looking straight up into the sky is right. uh, it's painful, but, you know, I still do it. I'll probably go out today, probably go outside today and watch birds for a little time, a little while. That's great. So, you know. You had a memorable experience going back to go shoot Hawkwatch last last year. You went up by helicopter. <laughs> yeah. So I hadn't been there in a couple of years. You know, my diagnosis was 2016, but it was 2014 that my symptoms started. Mm-hmm. So by 2016, I wasn't able to hike up there and get up there at all. So last fall, last September, a couple of friends, Jesse Watson and Neil Paprocki from Hawkwatch, they contacted the Gleason Foundation for ALS and got a grant to pay for a helicopter to fly me up there, which is which was wonderful. I was really surprised and happy to take them up on the offer. I, I hate flying. I was terrified. <laughs> That's ironic that you're a hawk watcher. <laughs> I know. I love birds and I can't. You know what? I would like to fly on my own wings. There you go. There under you my go. own control. More control. But, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they flew me up there. It was it was it was exciting. 
you know, you're down at the bottom of the canyon and the helicopter picked me up at the bottom with my wife, Sherry and Jesse and flew us up. And it only took a couple of minutes to get to the top of the ridge. But, you know, you had that bird's eye view like a hawk would over my favorite ridge. So I, I was I wasn't nervous at all once we got up got up in the air. I was like, I'm, I'm going to get to see this ridge the way the hawks see the ridge. I spent yeah. the day up there. We had a great dark morph broadwing that flew over. It was just a wonderful day. It was just nice to be up there again. I, you know, I was very, very grateful that they did that for me. I've seen you pop up from time to time on the ABA's What's This Bird ID group. Uh, do you mm-hmm. find satisfaction in remaining a part of the birding community despite, you know, not being able to get out in the field as much? Very much. Yes. I, I still enjoy helping people, especially with their IDs. Um, I actually did get off this all the bird sites recently, just the time constraint. It's hard to it's hard to answer all the follow up questions and <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I hear that. <laughs> yeah, my fingers aren't working very well at all. So but yeah, I do I do I do love to interact online. Um and I think people like it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think they do. I mean, you know, oh my yeah, god. Yeah. I was looking through this book and I realized the author answered the question. That's wonderful. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah. oh, I'm just a, a, a regular schmo like everybody else, you know, just happen to have my name on some covers. But it's it's funny. It's it's nice to get that reaction. Yeah. Uh, what do you see in the future for raptors and, and hawk watching specifically? Um, I like that there's a lot of young raptor watchers out there. Well, hawk watching will always be there, but I hope you need the young people to be interested. And there are there are a lot of young people out there and they're all savvy with the technology. And uh, I think there's going to be a lot more video down the road and mm-hmm. and learning tools. You know, people are still discovering new new sites to watch birds. Um, so I, I, th- I think it looks I think the future of hawk watching looks great. I just hope they still understand that the basics and just of identification and watching are always critical. You know, they can make binoculars that are 20 power and, well, they do, but you're still going to need a wide field of view and something you can hold steady. And, you know, Mm -hmm. some things will never go out of style. You know, you're still going to have to learn how they move. So, you know, I, I just hope there's people out there that are and I know there are studying like I studied them and there'll be new books and new experts. And I think it's wonderful. Jerry Ligori is the author of Hawks at a Distance and Hawks from Every Angle. His photography is featured in the June 2018 issue of Birding Magazine. There are three covers. You can get all three with a $75 donation to the ABA's nesting season appeal. Thanks, Jerry, for providing all your all your photography for that stuff. And, and thanks so much for talking to me. Oh, yeah. I appreciate you having me on and happy to do it anytime. Since I know you love long and intricate series of words, let me tell you a COVID-19 Christmas bird count pileated woodpecker's story. That should make for a great basis for your concluding shenanigans. Let me take all of your listeners back to Christmas Bird Count 2020 as we were in the midst of what was in Montreal, where I'm from, the second wave of COVID-19. Public health officials allowed us nevertheless to conduct our Christmas Bird Count under certain conditions. My birding club is responsible for covering a large portion of the east of the island of Montreal every year. 
were used to do most of the CBC all together, allowing members of the club of all skills to enjoy that wonderful day. Of course, uh, that was not possible in 2020, so I was the one responsible for contacting experienced members who felt comfortable covering part of the territory on their own so that our territory would be adequately covered uh, in spite of COVID. Of course, I kept for myself uh, the part that was left when all other members had already chosen, but I was still excited to discover a part of a territory that would be left mostly uncovered when we do the CBC as a team because it's not really as interesting. I had a mostly industrial part of Montreal in which the hottest spot was a small woodlot adjacent to a golf, boasting a grand historical total of only 49 eBird lists as of today. And, uh, well, let me tell you, there's a reason for that. It was a very tedious morning. No trails in this particular wood uh, meant going in random directions through the snow. It is Montreal in December, after all. Uh, knowing you're never really far from a street and hoping a bird will show up. Well, almost no bird did show up. I ended up after 2 hours, 30 minutes, and 5 kilometers with a list of 6 species, uh, which even for Montreal in the Christmas bird count is pretty bad. But in the middle of the woods, after more than an hour of walking, as I was starting to think it was probably pointless to be here at all, just so I could barely get the number of cardinals, downy woodpeckers, nuthatches, and chickadees that would typically show up at any good bird feeder in a backyard, well, at my darkest hour, it appeared a magnificent, pileated woodpecker. Immediately, my mind rushed to a memory of the year before, as we had almost missed the bird, but caught it as the sun was setting in the cold. We were so happy to be able to add it to our list in 2019 as a group, as it is not that common in our CBC circle. And now, finally, my visit to that dreadful wood was not in vain. I had it, and it was only 10.30 a.m., so I had still a long way to go to add more species. I started pondering the chance I'd had, uh, wondering if I would be the only one in my group and in our circle to get pileated woodpecker on my list. So, well, at the end of the day, as I was hoping to tell another member about my exciting story... Well, she told me she had seen something truly extraordinary. Three pileated woodpeckers on the same branch of a tree. And she even had a picture to prove it. Well, luckily, my sighting of a greater black-backed gull early in the morning would end up being our groups only, but, well, my pileated woodpecker was not uh, that exciting after all. You can't beat three pileated on the same branch. Thanks, Nate. That was my story. 
The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Support this podcast and all of our free resources for birders by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are many benefits like our magazines, discounts to our partners, opportunities to travel with us. Hey, and ABA memberships make great holiday gifts if you're still looking for one. Get information at aba.org slash join. And it is my responsibility to say that we are in the midst of our year-end appeal. So if you want to throw us a few bucks to help support the organization, please consider doing so. You can take care of that at aba.org slash gift. Shout outs this week to Virginia L. Russell and Frederick Lutt of Cincinnati, Ohio, Rachel Adler of Yardley, Pennsylvania, Dylan Treader of Escondido, California, Tom Barnwell and family of Tucson, Arizona, Keith Brooker and family of Beulah, Michigan and the Earl Orff household of North Oaks, Minnesota. All of them recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Technical production this week is by John Lowry, who was not surprised by this news that chickadees can smell as he always identified them by their accent. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who are both curious about whether this smell science with chickadees applies to titmusks. You can find us at ABA.org on Facebook and Twitter as American Birding Association or ABA. The difference between those Carolina and black-capped chickadees, I don't know, like to me, it's always been a matter of degree anyway. You can never be sure. Some of them, well, they're going to keep their secret. Questions, comments, get podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week. <laughs>